0: Where did life come from? It's one thing to stand back and ask how there is a universe. And that's a good question. That's a question that philosophers have asked for centuries. Where did the universe come from? Or, as Gottfried Leibniz asked, why is there something rather than nothing at all? But it's another step. It's another step to ask why is there life in the universe? Not just why is there a universe, but why is there life in the universe? Why is there life and where did it come from? How did it arise? It's a great question. Where did life come from? Because if you look at the naturalistic explanations for the universe, you have a universe, and this is their explanation, you have a universe that came from nothing, Or as scientist Stephen Hawking suggests, and I quote, because there is gravity, the universe can create itself. So somehow the universe is creating itself. So you have this universe that came from nothing by or of itself, but then somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line of time, inanimate matter came to life. Well, at some point, according to their story, and they got to have a story of how this all happened. Now, there's another explanation. Amen? The Bible tells us that God created the universe, the heavens, and the earth, and that's how the Bible opens Genesis 1.1. And then also, he created life to exist and to flourish on the earth as well. Now, if you go back to our very first Study in Genesis, the foundation of faith. We talked about the philosophical and scientific evidence that points toward a creator of the universe. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the origin of life and exactly how that happened and how that came to be upon the earth. We'll also look at the atheistic, naturalistic explanations, and we'll also look at what the Bible says. And so, we're, tonight, we're going to be looking at in day five of creation and a little bit into day six. So day five and day six of creation week. We're going to see tonight that God is the maker of life. He's the giver of life. In fact, he is the life. Amen. He is life itself. And he lays that foundation for life here beginning on day five. Of Creation Week, and so let's take a look at our text. It's going to be uh, Genesis chapter one. Pick it up, verse twenty. God makes life. This is how it reads, and I'm reading in the New King James Version. It says this: Then God said, "Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens." So God created. Great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good." And so what it, what it is that we see here in these verses of Scripture is that God creates life. Amen? God is the creator of life. He made life and he uh, uh, put life upon the earth. Remember when we came to verse 2 of Genesis 1 that the earth was formless. Uh, it was Uh, uh, formless. It was in kind of a chaotic state, if you will. And then it was also void. And the word there is really meaning empty. It was empty. It was not yet filled. And so God's purpose in the earth is to fill the earth. And so here he is beginning with these life forms. He's bringing life upon the earth and he's going to begin this process of filling the earth. And so he makes the, the Creatures in the in the waters in the seas, and he makes the birds, the flying thing, and he he begins to fill these things with life, and then of course he gives the the mandate to, for them to be fruitful and multiply, and so he wants the the earth to literally be filled. He wants the earth to be filled with life, and so first what we have here is is it says that he made. He made the sea creatures. He made the things in the waters, in the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the lakes. He made the sea creatures. And uh, looking down there at verse twenty, it says, "Let God." Then God said, "Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures." Uh, the Hebrew literally reads this way: "Let the waters." It would, if you closer translation would be, "Let the waters swarm with swarms." Of living creatures. I mean, there's, there's just these creatures that he is making, he's creating, and he's making them all according to his, his uh, their kind. And he's filling all the waters. He's making all kinds of sea creatures, all the fish. Amen. I, I can't get any amens from the fishermen out there, the people that like to go out and deep sea fish and go out there and do all that fishing and wading with poles and stuff in the water and doing all that stuff. I, I, I... I I don't do it. Amen? But I appreciate all the other people that do. And uh, I remember one day we got a call from from Rob, our dear brother Rob, and he called me up. He said, Charles, we've got some tuna fresh out of the ocean. Do you want some? I said, yeah, bring it on over. And he came up with this big bag of, of tuna, and we put it right on the grill. Amen. So God made the fish and the sea creatures. He made all that stuff. Then he said, let the skies be filled with Birds of every kind. Look at that there. And let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. Now I want to point out just a little thing here in the English translation. Because it does come up uh, in discussion as far as when you get into talks with skeptics and things. And it uses specifically the word bird. Bird. And um, people will say there is, a, there is a place in Leviticus that talks about um, all these birds uh, that, that you weren't to eat in Leviticus 11, which is the chapter that deals with the dietary laws of the Hebrews. And so uh, there's this list of birds, and at the very end of the list, and it says, and bats. And so then the skeptic points and goes, oh, see, see, that's where the Bible's wrong, because he had, it's saying that a, that a bat is a bird. And, uh, you know, so evidently a bat is not a bird, but the word bird. There, The English word is actually tied to the Hebrew word in the text, which simply means, means winged flying creature, okay? So that it can include birds, it can include, include bats, it, it can uh, include uh, even insects. I mean, if it's got a couple of flapping things on it and it's flying through the air, this is what is being created here when he's talking about let these flying things fly in the firmament of the heavens. Now, some of these things are incredible creatures, The eagle and all the rest of it. And then we have the mosquito. Evidently, there's a purpose there for that. We haven't quite figured that one out yet. But anyways, I'll spare you the details on that. But if you want to look up the passage, it's in Leviticus 11, 13 through 19. So God made the skies to be filled with the flying things. And this was in day five. Then... Going into the beginning of day 6, God made the animals, the creatures of the earth, the wild animals, the livestock, and the small animals. So if you look down here at verse 24, it says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth. And so really you have kind of three uh, demarcations there. You have cattle, uh, which would kind of uh, mark out like your beast of burden, the, the 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 animals that would be able to be used uh, by mankind in, in, um, in that way. And then you have like the wild beasts, or like uh, the hunter might call game, game, the wild beast of the field. And then you have the small creeping animals, and that would obviously include you know, all those furry critters, you know, back up in there, the jackrabbits and the and all the, the the you know, all that stuff, right? And so you have God creating uh the creatures of the of the earth. So the Bible states here that God brought forth light, life on the earth, in the seas, in the skies, in the face of the firmament of the heavens, and on the earth, creeping and crawling upon the earth. But we have a competing view. This is the view that we understand from Scripture, that as a believer in Christ, as a believer in God, that I believe this to be the Word of God, and this is telling me that God created the earth, He created all things, and He created life in these three areas. And so I I believe that. And I believe that for a lot of different reasons, but at the end of the day, I believe it because I believe that this is God's word. And I believe God's word to be true. Amen. <laughs> and But when we go out into the world, we realize that there is a competing view of the origin of life. When you go into the schools, when you go into the universities, when you go into the Uh, laboratories and all the rest of it you have a competing view about how life uh, came about or at least the complexity of it and of course that's called evolution evolution and you're all familiar with it and I'm glad that we've got some of the the teenagers here tonight and some of the middle schoolers in the in the crowd tonight because you need to understand what God's word says and and that you can believe it to be true and uh, you can look at uh, what your teachers are saying and what they're saying in, in science and what they're, the great scientists, the thinkers, uh, the guys out there doing laboratory tests and all this and what they're coming up with. And then coming back to the Bible and realizing that if you're a believer, this this is the Word of God. Amen? But let's take a look at evolution just tonight because I, I do want to just... Uh, take a look at it just for a little bit here the theory of evolution is just that a theory right I mean if you go into the classroom and you go into the university now they will not really refer to it as a theory Uh, in in fact if you challenge them on that they will kind of laugh at you and say you know yeah it's 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 this is rock solid I mean this is this is settled stuff here and uh, and if you challenge them on it in any type of real way, they'll just assume that you really don't know what you're talking about, that you really haven't read the literature, that you haven't looked at all the uh, the, the, the papers, the scientific papers, and, and all of it. But let me just take a look. Let me just let's take a look a little bit at evolution tonight. Evolution is the theory that states that the species and the complexity of life can be traced to. Mutations and natural selection. Darwin, in his book, Charles Darwin, in his book, The Origin of the Species, he referred to this as the the survival of the fittest. So you have life forms, you have life forms, not very complex life forms, and there were mutations in those life forms, and then those, life, those mutations were the, 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 the ones that were advantageous made those life forms into uh, better able to survive life forms. And then the other ones that weren't able to survive, they, of course, died off. And then you had this kind of progression, this evolution, if you will, of, of, of simple uh, life and then going all the way up to complex life. And thus explaining the complexity of life that we see today. Which is pretty complex. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So it, the, it, the theory has a lot to explain, really. If this is the theory that is being put out there, there's a lot to explain there. There's a lot of details. There's a tremendous amount of mutations that it would take. And even if a mutation was somehow beneficial, which they're not. <laughs> it's actually, I came across a figure that some 99.999% of mutations are bring about some type of a defect in the, uh, sorry about that. Bring about, that was a mutation of me not turning off the volume on my computer. And see, it was a negative impact on the situation. <clears throat> These mutations. Supposedly, there's more and more advantageous mutations, and those are helping these life forms to survive. And through millions and millions of mutations, and millions and millions of years, the complexity of life that we see on the earth today can be explained through evolution. This is the theory. And it's presented today as not a theory, as fact. In fact, it's been that way for quite a while now. Uh, Going back in my own life, I remember about 15 years ago, uh, when we were pastoring in Orlando, Florida, I was asked, I don't even know how this invitation came about, but I got a call from a teacher at the high school, and I was asked to come over and present Christianity to all of his classes uh, in this uh, uh, particular class. And he was having other religions come forth, and, and, you know, I think he had a Uh, you know, a Hebrew, you know, a Jew, a Hebrew, and and then he had a, a, I believe he had a Muslim. And so then I was the Christian pastor. And I'm going to go into the high school and I'm going to tell them about Christianity. And so where did I start? Well, I started from the beginning, amen. I didn't dive right into the cross and all that. I said, "No way! I'm going to have this hour and a half, three three lectures. I'm going to go right for the jugular here, and I'm going to talk about He's the Creator, and not only He's the Creator, but He's the Redeemer, and He's the one that's going to save your life." So I went back to creation. I began to talk about evolution, and I said, "Evolution is a theory. It's the theory of evolution." And you would—this was like you know, tenth grade. And there was like almost like a gasp even in the class because, they, because everyone is being brought along that this thing is settled. It's done. It's no need, there's no need to question this anymore. Well, I'm here to question it. Amen? Yes. And thank God for many, many other scholars and, and uh, apologists that are out there that are providing very good information uh, for us as believers and as students. That we need to avail ourselves to, and I want to encourage anybody here um, that's a student. That if you want to talk to me about the type of material that to look at, I can I can get you in touch with that. But we want to take a look at this evolutionary theory a little bit more. One of the biggest problems with the theory of evolution has been pointed out by a biochemist whose name is Michael Behe. Okay. Michael Behe, he's a biochemist, okay? So he's a biologist in that sense, but he's down on, like, the molecular level. He's down, like, way down looking at stuff in microscopes, okay? And Behe has presented a major problem for evolution that he has termed irreducible complexity, okay? Is everybody still with me this morning, tonight? You still with me? Okay. All right. You've got to stay with me on this stuff because, you know, this is good stuff, all right? This is good stuff. Irreducible, you need to know this term. You need to, kids, you need to know this term, all right? Irreducible complexity. This is important. Michael Behe. Behe has presented this, and in his presentation on this, he brings out a quote from Charles Darwin. And this is what Darwin said in Origin of the Species. Look at this. I'll have it on the screen. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. End quote. Charles Darwin in the origin of the species. This is an important quote to know from Darwin. Did you know that Darwin said something like this? That there was a way to kind of disprove his idea, his theory. And so what did Michael Behe do? He went right after that to, to, to try to demonstrate that these things could not come about by numerous uh, successive slight modifications and thus to break down the theory of evolution. So, irreducible complexity. Go back. Let's go back to irreducible complexity. This is the idea that Michael Behe... Is presenting, and it is this. It sounds like you know you have the word reducible and complexity in there, and so if you wrap your mind around those two terms, you can kind of begin to understand the term that there that something that's irreducible is that you can't reduce it, and complexity is that it's a complex thing, and so it's such a complex thing that you can't reduce it and it still have the function that it had, and you couldn't have those things arrive at that complexity and that function, that functionality. I'll say it like this. Irreducible complexity is a term used to describe a characteristic of certain complex systems whereby they, they need all of their individual component parts in place in order to function. In other words, it's impossible to reduce the complexity of an irreducibly complex system by removing any of its component parts and still remain in its functionality. The best way to understand this is by use of an example that Michael Behe uses in his book called Darwin's Black Box. Um, It's a heavy-duty book. It's not really for most people. I mean, I, like, Got through most of it, okay, and I do have it in my library, but it's a heavy-duty read. But, anyways, I'm going to break this down for you because this is kind of the, the 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 nuts and bolts of the of really the entire presentation. He uses the example of a mousetrap as a as an irreducibly complex system. Okay, so every we know we all know what these are, right? Do we still know what these are? Do we <laughs> these things are almost outdated, right? You now now we have these these black tunnel things and the the rats and stuff go in there and then we're like, "Oh, yeah, we got them." You know, <laughs> a long time ago there used to be these things, right? Called mouse traps, all right? And what you have is you have a few parts on this mouse trap, and here's the theory that the mouse trap has to have all of the parts to function as a mouse trap. In other words, if you take away, the, there's the hammer, there's the spring, there's the catch, there's the platform, and then there's the holding bar. And then, and then the cheese, too, right? <laughs> you have to have the cheese. So, in other words, if you took any one of those parts away, you don't have a mousetrap, okay? So, if you take away a part, you never have a thing that is arising to that part because natural selection has no idea what the future is coming, okay? So, the, you know, natural selection is not some cognitive mind. There's this, there's this thing within the evolutionists that they want to assign this idea of kind of a cognitive mind to the, to the process of natural selection. Natural selection has no idea what's coming in, into the future. And so if you don't have the component parts in place, you don't have the functionality of that complex system. Are you still with me? Yes. Amen. Okay. So, B he argues that the less complicated and irreducibly complex system is, the more likely it is that it could have had have evolved along an indirect route, either by evolving from simpler precursor, which is served as a, a, a different function, or from a more complicated precursor. Conversely, the more complicated an irreducibly complex system is, the less likely it is that it could have evolved along an indirect route, according to Behe. Quote: As the complexity of an interacting system increases, though, the likelihood of such an indirect route drops off incredibly. So, in other words, if you have a super complex system that has all kinds of component parts. If you take away one of the parts, you no longer have a working system. Okay? And there's nothing to say that through mutations, which are 99% negative, that somehow you're going to get to a complex system. Other examples of an irreducibly complex system would be the blood clotting cascade, the thing in our bodies that actually allows... For clotting of blood, which is actually life-saving. If you did not have this uh, system in your body, then you would like you would cut yourself and die. It'd be over, you know, in just a matter of there it is, it's gone. And so you have the blood clotting uh, cascade, and then also the human eye. The human eye is another idea on a little bit of a bigger scale. Now, what Michael B. He deals with is on the micro level. And so, what he deals with is on the cellular level. Now, I remember when I was in school, okay, going back in high school to the 80s. Amen? Yeah, the 80s, right? 1985, you know, back to the future and all that good stuff. I remember that they talked about the simple cell. Remember that? Remember that? The simple cell? Well come to find out that it ain 't simple amen <laughs> that the, the cell is like it 's like there 's multiple huge factories going on in your cells right now. If you go down in a microscope and look at your cells, there are whole factories of things going on that are are, are doing all kinds of of, of of jobs, and all those things that are the, in that cell those factories are complex systems that are really, what Michael B., he suggests, are irreducibly complex. So it's not just on these macro levels that things are irreducibly complex. It actually goes all the way down to the cellular level. Well, I want to move forward before I completely lose all of you. Amen? Amen. And everyone said, amen. Where's the Gatorade, right? (laughs) I want to move on to another thing that really kind of creates a major problem for evolution. And it's this little old thing called DNA, right? DNA. This is where the complexity that we see in life comes from. It comes from this strand, this molecule that's called the DNA molecule. And it is where the information is placed that actually brings about the complexity in any life form. So you ask, where, where, where did all this complexity? You look at the human body, you look at a cat, you look at a dog, you look at a shrimp, you look at a, you know, whatever it is, you look at where where did all this complexity come from? Well, it comes from the DNA molecule, which is the information of the life form. DNA is a molecule that carries the genetic instructions used in the growth, development, functioning and reproduction of all known living organisms and many viruses. This information tells the cells exactly what to replicate and exactly what to do. It's like a blueprint for life. Now, if you walked in to a if you walked along the seashore and you saw a set of blueprint plans, You wouldn't go, oh, well, what are these? You know, you'd say, no, this blueprint, this information, somebody put this information together. And the DNA code is an unbelievable code of information. It's information that is locked away inside the cell. Now, people who don't come to the conclusion that there's a creator can dismiss all of these things. We could have a skeptic here. I don't know if you're a skeptic. But so far, you could say, oh, well, nice try. You know, he brought out some, you know, microbiology and biochemistry. And he, you know, flattered us and, you know, wowed us with pictures of mouse traps. <laughs> brought up DNA and information on the cellular level. And still people can say, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But at the end of the day, someone can dismiss it in a conversation, in a debate, in a book, in a classroom, in a lecture, but it's not dismissed. Amen? The problems with evolution are still there. Amen? I can just say, oh, well, I dismissed that out of hand. Well, that's fine. I can do that. I have a right to do that. But the problems are still there. The reality is this, that God put a code deep down into the cell, into your cells. There's a code of life. And it's incredible. In this, we've discovered the building blocks of life, and they point towards an intelligent designer of life. And when you come back to the Bible and you see that God is the creator, and that he made life upon the earth, we see that God is the life maker. Amen? God's the life maker. He's the life giver. But the Bible also says that he is the life. He's not only the giver of life, he's not only the maker of life, but he is the life. Amen? I want to take you to a passage in the New Testament now, in John chapter 11. If you want to turn over there with me, John chapter 11. I want to talk to you about this. Jesus is the life. Not only did God make life, but Jesus is the life. Jesus had received a word in John chapter 11 that his friend Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, his friend Lazarus was gravely ill. And... beginning at verse 4 of John 11, it says this, and I'll read it if you're following along with me. It says, When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So, He hears he's got friends. Jesus has these really, really, really close friends in Bethany. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he finds out Lazarus is sick, and he he stays two more days where he was. But Jesus, the text tells us here, he eventually decides to go to Bethany in Judea. But the disciples try to talk him out of going to Judea, because of the death threats that Jesus had come in uh, there in Judea. Yeah. Nothing's changed. There's death threats. There was death threats in Jesus' time. There's death threats today. Jesus had death threats, right? The text says, hey, Jesus, they wanted to stone you there. Remember that? Remember that? when In Judea, they want to stone you. They want to kill you. You still want to go there, Jesus? Look what Jesus says, beginning of verse 11. He says, these things he said, and after he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said plainly to them, Lazarus is dead and i am glad for your sakes that i was not there that you may believe nevertheless let us go to him okay so whenever you're feeling a little bit slow it's okay you're in good company with the uh with the disciples you know they weren't always tracking with jesus and jesus has to to uh bring them along but there's an interesting little verse here that i find interesting and i always like to kind of When I read back through a scripture, maybe I've I've taught through it before, and I'll come back to it again, and I see it, and it'll kind of jump out at me. And this time, when I looked at it, this little uh, statement by Thomas kind of stuck out at me, where Thomas, actually seemingly joking with the other disciples, he said, yeah, let's go too. We'll die with Jesus when we go to Judea, you know. It's almost like, you know, the sarcastic Thomas is saying, yeah, I guess we'll go too. We'll go die with Jesus in Judea. He wants to go back there. So when they were on their way, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. He was dead. Martha, Lazarus' sister, went out to meet Jesus. And she said to him, Lord, Lord. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Evidently, there was some faith. There was some belief that Martha had that Jesus had power, that he had the power of life. And Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And then Jesus replied to her. John eleven twenty five, 25. And this is what Jesus said to him, said to her. And this is one of the seven I am statements of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so we have this declaration, this I am statement that Jesus is saying, I'm the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, if you put your trust in me, if you come to me and you come and you're part of me, part with me, though you may die, you will live because I'm the resurrection and the life. So what did Jesus do? He, 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 uh, he goes on, and whoever lives, verse 26, and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he asked her. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So Jesus goes all the way to the grave, to the gravesite there in Bethany. Lazarus in the tomb, four days And when he got to the tomb, the text tells us there in John 11.35, it tells us that Jesus wept. Now, a lot of people that aren't too familiar with the New Testament, and they hear the, the verse, Jesus wept, they think maybe he cried on the cross. But really, he cried with compassion for his friend that was in the grave. He wept. He wept over the death of his Here he just said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And here he is showing us that he has this great compassion for his friends. And don't you know if you're a believer in Christ that he has called you friend? This guy, this God that we serve, that's the resurrection and the life, that he has that compassion for you because he's called you friend? Then Jesus said, take away the stone." And he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came out of the grave. He wa- I don't know how he made it. He was wrapped in all kinds of clothes. I mean, I've seen church plays on this with, you know, guys walking out of, you know, paper mache rock graves and stuff with like, you know, clothes and trying to walk and stuff. But it must have been an incredible sight. Because here was this guy that was dead for four days, and he's coming out. He's been wrapped. He's been prepared for burial, and he's coming out. And it says he was bound with all of the grave wrappings, and they unloosed him. They unwrapped him from these grave wrappings, and he was alive. Amen? You see, Jesus is the creator, and he's the creator of life. This is what Paul tells us in Colossians This is what Paul tells us in Romans, the the, the writers of the Bible talk to us about God being the creator, but he's also the life. And he says, if you believe in me, you'll have life. He's compassionate towards you, and he wants to bring the dead to life. Now, how does this happen? One of the things that we have to understand is that when someone comes to Christ, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you literally come alive. The Bible talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and so where people may be physically walking around, and you have that physical life, and you may actually do what, like God said about some of these creatures that creep around the creep around the the the, the ground, you may creep through your house, all right, physically. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And the Bible says that you're dead in your sins, and you've got to come to Christ if you want to live. If you want to live forever, you've got to come to Christ and you've got to receive him. And John, earlier in this book, he opened it up in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, to as many as received him, he's given you the power to become a child of God, a son or daughter of God, if you receive him. If you you surrender your life to him, if you realize your need of a savior, that you're totally lost without him, that you're dead in your sins. He wants to take care of those sins. He wants to forgive you and he wants to make you come alive in him. And it's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. And Christian, we need to know this and we need to understand not only for ourselves, but so that we can tell other people. I believe we're living in a time that people know less and less about what actually the Bible says and what actually the, the, the gospel is. I had someone text me this week, how, how is it that a person's saved? A simple question. A simple question. But it's coming to God. It's coming to Jesus Christ and receiving Him. Realizing your sins and that you're lost and dead in your sins and confessing, your sins to the Lord and believing upon Him, confessing Him as Lord of your life, confessing that Jesus is Lord, not as an act of a, 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 a linguistics, but a declaration of the heart, receiving Him, you become what Jesus said, born again. Born again. Nicodemus didn't understand it either, and he was like, you know, one of the high learned guys of of Israel. He says, well, how can I be born again? How can I go again into my mother's womb and be born again? No, I'm not talking about being born again physically. I'm talking about being born from above. Being born not by the will of a man and a woman, your mother and father but being born by the will of your heavenly Father. Amen? Coming alive in Jesus Christ. And so not only is God the maker of life, physical life, and that animation that he had placed upon this earth, but he wants to give you that spiritual life. Amen? But he doesn't stop there. Amen? This is the foundation of life that God wants to bring about in the life of the people that he calls his people, the people of God, the family of God, the sons of God, if you will. It's not just coming alive and having life, but Jesus took it one step further and he says, I've come that you would have abundant life. Amen. I haven't just given you life. I've come that you'd have abundant life. Just one chapter, there we were in John chapter 11. If you go back one chapter to John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about being the great shepherd. And then he talks about the enemy. And he says, yeah, there's an enemy. And he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah, he comes to steal. And he comes to kill. And he wants just destruction. The question is, has the enemy brought destruction into your life? Perhaps he's stolen something of yours. He's, He's a thief. He's a liar and a thief. He's always been a liar and a thief and a destroyer. He destroys things. He doesn't build things. He destroys. And too many have allowed the enemy to, to steal and to destroy in their life. Maybe the enemy has stolen from you. Maybe you've allowed him to bring destruction. You know, Paul would talk about giving the enemy a toehold in your life, giving him a foothold. When you give the enemy a foothold, he, what does he do? He tries to bring about destruction. But Jesus then flips it. And he says, but let me tell you why I've come. Let me tell you why I've come. I've come to give you life. And life to the full. Life to the full. Life more abundantly. We know it as abundant life. Life to the full. Life to overflowing. Life to like, you know, if you had a glass of water or a glass of, you know, high C or a glass of, you know, uh, you know gourmet soda pop, you know, <laughs> knee high or something, I don't know, way back, you know, the good stuff back, you know, when they used to have that stuff. Remember that commercial when the guys were out on the front porch? and they were just hot, and they had played basketball and and all this, and and they were like, yeah, I wish I had a knee-high, and then suddenly there was a knee-high, and then there was like this rushing river of orange knee-high, like down the strip, down the street of their life, and there they were just, you know, in this raging torrent of knee-high. Remember that? Am I crazy? I mean, do you remember this? I remember this. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's what God came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. He says, I haven't come to steal, kill, or destroy. I've come that you'd have life, and you'd have life to the full. That there'd be a torrent of living water flowing up from within, inside of you. Amen? That you'd have life to the full. And, wow, you say, I don't have that right now. I look at my life, and I don't have life to the full. Well, Jesus says, "I've come. I'm the resurrection and the life, and I've come that you might have life." And, and, and He is the life, and he wants to come into your life, and he wants to begin to be your Lord and guide and direct your steps and your path so that you come right in to a very full life in him. Amen. Because he's guiding your choices, your direction, where you're headed. And he does an incredible. Incredible job. Because he's the first and the last. (laughs) He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And if there's anybody you can trust your life in, it's him. Amen? He's the author of life. He's the very author of life. So why would we not trust him with our very lives? He's the life, and he wants us living and walking in an abundant overflowing life in Him.